Well, you have already heard most of one sermon this morning, and I'm not about to try to compete with Charles Wesley. That poem that Terry has put to various tunes and Regina has helped us sing this morning is a remarkable reflection on our reading from the book of Genesis. It is a kind of sermon on its own, an interpretation that means to bring this story alive in our hearing. And it does, doesn't it? In Wesley's hands, the story of Jacob wrestling with that mysterious figure by the riverbank becomes the story of an individual's wrestling to understand what God is like. I know you're there, God, says the poem's speaker, and you know who I am. You know my name, you know where I've been, you know my gifts and my failures, my misery and my sin. You know me, but who are you? What are you like, really? Do you remember my every misstep, my every shortcoming? Are you like the voices around me that tell me again and again I'm not enough? Are you one more voice of judgment reminding me of all that I am not? The struggle that Wesley describes there is a very real one. Maybe it is one you know something about yourself. So many of us have deeply internalized voices of criticism and condemnation. We know all too well how to belittle ourselves, to dwell on our faults, to beat us ourselves up for the things we might have done differently or better. We know all about record-keeping and tallying when it comes to our failures, and so we imagine God must be like that, too, just on a grander scale. God must be some sort of cosmic Santa Claus, we imagine, keeping a list of all we have done wrong and checking it twice just to be sure nothing is missing. Never mind that it's bad theology. It's an image of God that so many of us absorb one way or another. God the legalist. God the unforgiving judge. Wesley's poem describes the struggle to understand God differently, not as one more critic, one more who condemns us, but as love, pure universal love that is not just for the universe and all those other people out there, but that is for me, love that claims me and accepts me and holds me as I am here and now. The poem is about the struggle to internalize grace, to claim it as our own. The great English hymn writer Isaac Watts, who wrote bunches and bunches of texts, said that this one poem of Wesley's was worth all the verses he himself had ever written. It's a wonderful reflection on the Genesis story, and it depicts a struggle many of us know well. Though I do think Jacob's own struggle that night was quite different. And it is worth tending to that one today as well. Rivers often mark geographical boundaries. Think of the Rhine forming the border between Switzerland and Germany, or the Rio Grande between Mexico and the United States. Just a short distance from where my family and I live, there is this funny little creek, which I recently learned is named the Foron River. Cross the little bridge that runs over it and you're suddenly in France. Rivers are often boundary markers, and Jacob is at a boundary in our story in more ways than one. The river Jabbok marks a geographical boundary in Jacob's world. On one side is the land that he came from, the land that his grandfather Abraham was led to 
not so long ago. And on the other side is the land where his uncle Laban lives. The river marks a sort of boundary between those two places. But Jacob is at another sort of border besides, one between two chapters of his life. You might remember that Jacob's story has been marked by conflict from the very beginning. He entered the world literally grabbing onto the heel of his older twin brother Esau, who was born first. Jacob in Hebrew actually means heel. Jacob conned Esau into trading his birthright as an older son for a bowl of lentil soup when Esau was so hungry he couldn't think straight. The two of them have never really gotten along, and things finally reached a tipping point when Jacob tricked his dying father Isaac into giving him a blessing that was intended for Esau. Esau was mad enough to kill his brother, and so Jacob fled far from the place where he'd grown up to the distant land where his uncle Laban lived. So fast forward 14 years and a whole lot has happened. Jacob has prospered in Laban's house. He now has two wives, lots of livestock, and this great entourage of people as part of his household. Laban has grown poorer while Jacob's gotten richer, so he's actually quite anxious for his nephew to be on his way. And Jacob has nowhere to go but back home, back to the place where he came from. He has no idea what he'll find there. Will Esau still be fuming mad? Will he have a place to settle down and raise his family? All of that uncertainty and worry and danger is hanging in the air as Jacob approaches the river. He prepares a gift for Esau. He sends messengers ahead. He sends his family and his whole servants and his livestock along as well. And he is alone as the shadows lengthen and the moon glows in the sky that night. Biblical scholar Rachel Wren calls this a liminal space in Jacob's life, a space between times, between physical settings, a place of tension where the past has gone, the future has not yet begun, and transformation can happen. I find it helpful to name Jacob's situation here in that way. He is at this sort of crossroads in his own life, an in-between place that is neither here nor there, where much is unknown. Wesley's poem describes a kind of liminal experience in our faith lives, wrestling our way from one understanding of God to another. But there are lots of other liminal times we might find ourselves facing, maybe even now. All sorts of times in life can feel like this. There's the space between one job's ending and another one's beginning. Or a time of accompanying a loved one through a serious or lengthy illness. Or the days and weeks and months after kids first leave home and go off to university. Or a transition to a new city or a new country or a new culture. I know lots of people for whom their entire stay in Geneva has felt like a kind of liminal space. Or the journey of grief, finding yourself suddenly navigating life without someone whose presence you cherished. These liminal times come for all of us, these boundaries between chapters that are often disorienting and uncomfortable. Jacob is at one of them there by the river, and it is then that this mysterious figure emerges out of the shadows. 
I don't know about you, but I have sometimes thought of this story as basically a vivid picture of Jacob's faith. Like, the initiative here was basically his. He was tormented by his own worries about the future that night, and so he reached out and took hold of God and struggled to see his way forward. And that sounds good to me, but if you actually read the text closely, it sure looks like Jacob doesn't make the first move here. It sure looks like God comes unbidden and locks arms with him. On the one hand, that is more than a little bit disturbing. I mean, what kind of God is this who shows up in this way at a crucial moment in Jacob's life? Not as sort of a gentle, smiling friend with a cup of tea and a willingness to listen, but as an opponent, one who pushes on him and invites him to push back. It is a strange and unsettling picture, that's for sure. On the other hand, it is an amazing image of God's commitment to this person. God's relationship with Jacob is deep enough that God isn't going to stay distant and disinterested when it comes to his life. God isn't going to stand by and let Jacob figure it all out for himself. And God isn't simply going to listen and nod politely and wish Jacob well. No, God is going to be there in that boundary time to struggle with Jacob toward new life. That is the sort of God we are dealing with. One who shows up in the liminal spaces in our own lives, not with all the answers, but with the will to engage us, to wrestle with us, to struggle with us as we find our way. Whether you are struggling to understand God's presence in your life, or the next step in your career, or what life looks like after a great loss, this story points us to the God who gets involved, who locks arms with us in the uncertainty. And our job? Well, it sure looks like it's to push back. And that is remarkable, isn't it? Jacob doesn't sort of cave after 30 seconds and say, okay, okay, I give up, you win. No, he shows this remarkable resolve, matching God's force, throwing everything he has into this wrestling match. He wants to claim God's promise to be with him always. He wants to know that that is still going to hold true when he goes into this uncertain future that's ahead of him. And he will not let go until God honors it. Jacob isn't chastised for his behavior here, as though he were meant to just submit passively to God. Quite the opposite. His new name honors his determination. Israel means one who strives with God. And so that is our job too, to wrestle with this God who wrestles with us, who challenges us, who pushes us toward new futures, who engages us in our uncertainty. We are to keep praying, to keep searching, to keep striving. Like the speaker in Wesley's poem, we are to hold on and not let go. Terence Fretheim points out that the story never actually mentions a moment at the end where Jacob lets go of God. And it never tells of God leaving him. It just sort of ends right in and moves right into the confrontation with Esau. In some sense, Fretheim writes, this means that God and Jacob remain bound to each other, facing this future. 
When the sun rises the next morning, Jacob still doesn't know exactly what's ahead. He is limping, forever marked by this encounter. But he and God are bound together, facing the future together. So take heart, friends, and stay in the struggle, because that is how it is. In the in-between times, at the boundaries of our life, we face the future bound to this God whose nature and whose name is love. Amen.